Hello and welcome to Unpleasant Movies, the podcast dedicated to harsh and unrelenting cinema. My name is Svade Ogur. And my name is Thomas Simonsen Barmbra. And today we're talking about I Stand Alone, the 1998 feature by Gaspar Noé, which was produced by Gaspar Noé and his wife, Hatsi Halilovich, also edited by Lucille and Gaspar together. His spouse, uh, Lucille Hatsil Halilovich, who's an interesting filmmaker in her own right. She's made a really good movie called Innocence and um, Evolve, I think the other one is. Very interesting pair. Yeah, and they seem to work very well together. It's always interesting to see sort of uh, married couples working together on artistic projects and yeah. making it work. Yeah. So this movie is starring Philippe Nahon, Blandine Lenoir, Frankie Pine, and Martine O'Drain. The basic premise of this movie is about a French butcher, well, ex-butcher, and um, he's in a relationship with a pregnant woman, a former bar owner, and they move to the north of France to sort of start a new life there. And he hates everything uh, about his uh, life and his situation, and eventually he punches his girlfriend and escapes to Paris where he sort of uh, tries to get a job and he goes on these misanthropic rants in his head and he eventually starts fantasizing about having these delusions of grandeur and fantasizes about killing people and causing violence and you know getting even with the people who treat him like shit. Yeah, that's about the basic premise of the movie and um, it's quite an intense movie. Yeah, yeah. It's actually, um, it's kind of a, a sequel or an expansion of his first, uh, not a, a full feature, like a 40-minute yeah, uh, short, short. short novella film called Carne. Sort of a second in a sort of trilogy almost. Well, not a trilogy, but... Yeah, it's not exactly a trilogy, but this character doesn't have a name. He's the just, Nameless Butcher. He also kind of turns up in beginning of Irreversible, but doesn't have a large role in that. He's just a small cameo. And the film kind of starts out with this montage of him summarizing his life, talking about like events from being born, being orphaned and going through, you know, school. And, and to me, that section was almost Raymond Carver-like in the way that it really quickly surmises a life with just the basics and manages to kind of um, fill it with a lot of depth, even though it was quite short. And he kind of just almost nonchalantly mentions that he's been, uh, you know, uh, raped as a child. And he talks about himself in the third person. Yeah, it's sort of a like almost an origin story. Like, um, I like how, well, not literary, but almost like, Epic it is considering the sort of the small character this is. Yeah. Like he, he gets this sort of treatment yeah. in the beginning that it seems almost excessive for this character. I, I like it. Some of the like the treatment of that is inspired by an Austrian movie from 1983 called Angst. Yeah, I've seen Angst. <laughs> yeah. And uh, well, it starts before that, before the sort of historical treatment of the character. It's kind of interesting. This sort of bar conversation. Yeah. With this dude with a gun he starts talking about morals and there's this sort of a orchestra hit or a sound effect, like a sort of a stab. Mm-hmm. It's morals and this huge like lettered word on the screen. Yeah, it uses a lot of title screens throughout. And, yeah. and as you said in the first sequence, it has the very large capital letters, justice and morals. And this guy talking about how these things are absent in society really. And you have to have your own morals, which is your own personal firearm. Yeah, I would say some, some of the like, 
the monologues and talking about what's going on sort of it reminds me a bit actually of Bertolt Brecht mm. and his sort of really direct way of like uh, handling societal issues mm. and stuff but also I think the whole like large lettered fonts huge words on screen it's kind of more usual these days yeah. you see it in a lot of movies these days but at the time it was uh, a lot more shocking I think yeah I mean it comes and goes it certainly wasn't trendy in the 90s <laughs> Absolutely not. So, but it, it feels more contemporary because I'm more used to seeing it in in contemporary movies. It's also interesting to note that the acting throughout the film is mostly quite static in a way. It's just this guy walking around and he's meeting with people. He talks a little bit with people, but it's mostly driven by his like inner monologue, yeah. which is like really aggressive, these rants of yeah, frustration and loneliness. This, this super misanthropic sort of stream of consciousness. Mm. It's uh, kind of cool. Like, it's almost endearing in a way how hateful this guy is. <laughs> He's just such a negative person. He's talking about sort of this, how life is this endless circle of just misery. Mm. And like, yeah, at one point he goes to a porn cinema yeah. to watch a porn movie. And a scene that's a bit reminiscent of the scene where in Taxi Driver, where he goes to see a movie. Yeah. And uh, while he's watching this porn movie and it's not censored. Yeah, it's course, very graphic. Yeah, <laughs> like in the typical European movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he goes on this sort of a monologue inside his head that, you're a slave to your genetic code and uh, you're born against your will. You eat, you wave your dick around, you make a new life and you die. Yeah. Like it's so, so negative, but sort of poetic in a sort of uh, bottomless despair of um, living. Yeah. I don't know. And that scene, um, this is the, the first part of the film when he's, he's living with his mother-in-law and his kind of girlfriend who's pregnant with his child. Yeah. They've kind of had some informal plans to start up a butcher's shop. Yeah, she's wealthy and she was going to lend him the money to start up his own butcher shop. But she keeps holding back. Yeah. And uh, he's getting frustrated about that. And she says, yeah, we'll just get a part-time job. I don't want to spend money before the kid comes. And he gets more and more resentful. But he takes a job as a, a night watchman at an old folks home. And he witnesses a person dying together with a, a younger nurse. And he kind of comforts her a bit. As he he seems emotionally detached. Yeah, he, yeah. throughout he's very emotionally <laughs> yeah. detached. He has one expression. He yeah. never changed his, his expression until the end. But yeah. he tries to get a job in a, in a supermarket, mm. in the butcher's desk. And, yeah. <laughs> and the sort of the boss there tells him, you got to smile. This is a supermarket. People yeah. want to have a comfortable shopping experience. Yeah. And he just can't smile. His face is just completely blank. Yeah, and, and he just quits on the spot instead of smiling. Well, he got fired. Yeah, he got fired. But he refuses to smile yeah. for this this guy yeah just a job yeah and <laughs> i think, think he probably found it quite humiliating in a way as working in a deli versus being a butcher which was his trade yeah i think a theme going through this movie is he feels very powerless yeah but he keeps talking to himself like mm. he has power and mm. he's strong and he's he's like this alpha guy and he, he feels he has to pep talk himself constantly to sort of feel empowered because his mm. life is so sort of sad and yeah and um, he's really lonely. He's kind of like this wounded animal who's bleeding all over and just uh, really angry and frustrated. And yeah. Lonely. And it is a really primal movie too. Like you mm. mentioned, he feels sort of like a wounded animal. It feels very primal. There's a lot of talk of meat and a lot of themes mm. and visual imagery of meat and just bodies. And it says at one point, I'm a piece of flesh that thinks too much. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great quote. Yeah. So you, you get this sense that he's sort of almost entirely driven by these primal urges mm. while he does think 
a lot. He thinks way too much for his own good. He he doesn't feel like he should be thinking so much. He feels he feels like a piece of meat. He feels like he's just wandering around being controlled by the elements. Mm. And there's also this innate sense of class struggle. Mm. He's poor. The poor never get what they want. And yeah. the rich are always like, they're well-dressed, they're mm. gay, they control everything. Yeah. It's, yeah, he's really racist and homophobic. And yeah, but but it's... Aggressive. It's interesting the way you almost feel sympathetic for him, nonetheless, yeah. because he's just, he's so down and out. He's so... Yeah, you have a lot of these scenes where he's confronted with disinterest by former colleagues and friends. He's asking for a job or borrow a little bit of money and yeah, everyone's right. completely disinterested. And they might say like, yeah, you know, um, I wish I could help you, but times are tough. And everyone says that times are tough. Yeah, this is when, yeah. right when he has escaped uh, after punching his wife and threatening them with a gun, he steals uh, the mother's gun yeah. and he travels to Paris and he tries to connect with old friends and all of them mm. are like to say they want nothing to do with him mm. and they're all these sad sack characters too mm. and uh, one of them is like you look like shit and the guy saying it just looks so terrible yeah 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's it's funny it's just, it's just awful mm. like the second part of this movie reminds me a lot of hunger by knut thompson the way he's yeah. always bumping into <laughs> these sad sack characters and always trying to fend for himself and like counting his money and trying to find yeah. out where his next meal is going to be and it's so sad and it's this he's in this shitty hotel room and he doesn't know how long he can stay because he doesn't have money and he, he yeah. can't pay the landlord and everything's just miserable yeah if you take away the misogyny and racism then it's uh, quite uh, right right similar. like yeah because of course in that aspect it differs totally uh he's a really hateful person mm. and it's also for such a sort of sad and down and out uh story it's edited and uh, filmed and acted and the script is done in a way that's very exciting yeah it's it quite riveting actually yeah it's quite riveting it feels like a not even a thriller. Like, it's reminiscent of, like, Guy Ritchie, like, Snatch and Lockstock and Two <laughs> yeah. Smoking Barrels with the sort of really snappy editing and sound design and everything. He has a very specific thing that he does throughout the film, which is kind of like a shotgun cut, where he, like, very quickly cuts or jumps with a camera from one situation to another, like a close-up. And he uses, like, a gunshot as part of the uh, sound design. Yeah, and also a really quick zoom yeah. into the scene. Yeah. And sometimes it's not a gunshot, it's an orchestra hit. Yeah. But the effect yeah. is the same. It's like these almost jump scares mm -hmm. <laughs> throughout, interspersed throughout the movie. It's often on really mundane and, and regular occurrences, mm -hmm. like stuff that you really wouldn't give that treatment in a different... Like, it's, it feels weird, but mm -hmm. also strangely exhilarating. And it serves to up the excitement of the movie to where it's really tense and you don't know what's going on. And you... Yeah, but it also kind of talks about like the, the emotional aspect of the situation. It's, it's not representing any, anything physical in the scene like you would in a jump scare. But it talks about his mental state, I think. Yeah, but I think that's the way the movie mm. is edited and sort of the sound design. Everything sort of serves the purpose of showing us his mental yeah. state. You know? It's very subjective. There's an early image where he's... Still living with his uh, mother-in-law and she walks in on him while he's standing up from his bed. And just for a moment, you see his genitals. They just flash and suddenly he is wearing underwear. And it kind of shows his angst of that situation that she's looking at him and seeing him, but not seeing Yeah, him. I love that scene. There, there are some other scenes mm. in this movie where it sort of shows almost a fantasy of mm. what could happen or, yeah. or maybe uh, some anxiety he has and that Noah shows the sort of real scene afterwards. Mm. I like that. It works incredibly yeah, efficiently it, in this. And it makes it kind of unpredictable. I mean, this guy, as you said, you know, in sometimes you, you quite sympathize with him because there's something quite sad about him and, and you kind of want things to go right. Even even though he does do quite gruesome things. I guess it's it's worth mentioning that when he's been to the, the porn theatre, he comes back and he's accused of having seen another woman because 
her friend saw him walking home with a nurse after the, they witnessed the person dying. And the situation escalates. He just loses it and starts to punch her in the stomach, probably killing their unborn child. Yeah, um, that's what she says anyway. You, you murder my baby. It's unclear whether or not he actually does that. Yeah. You don't really see any repercussions well, of it because he... he does punch her stomach really hard several times. It seems quite dramatic. Yeah, yeah but, but my point is you don't really see the aftermath. He just no. flees, yeah. you know, so it's left up in the air and it mm. brings attention to everything that happens mm. later. As he goes to Paris, he kind of avoids living with people she might know about. He, he stays at a hotel or a, a flop house, which has special significance for him. Yeah, it's uh, where he conceived the, his daughter. Yeah, his, his mute daughter who's currently living in an institution. And the mother, we learn, has uh, originally left him for another person and then also killed herself. It seems the only person he has some affection for is his daughter. Mm. But that's interesting in contrast to the son he was about to have Mm. when he punches his girlfriend and she's badly beaten on the couch and crying. And Mm. he's like, the baby is nothing but a meatball. It's just just a piece of meat. It doesn't matter to him at all. Yeah, he's very dispassionate about that. It's it's better for, for the son to just die. Yeah. Yeah, that's the point, that not being born into the world is is much better than being forced to suffer Right, like human beings. There is this incredible sense of nihilism for this butcher. He's just so... There's just this bleakness about everything. He says, like, life is a giant void and it can do just fine without me. And it sort of colors every interaction he has with everyone, and especially those close in his, like, in his personal life. Mm. He seems like an incredibly toxic person, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Every situation he goes into, he's kind of turned down or... Dismissed. Yeah, dismissed. Yeah. And um, he just can't seem to get any sort of a break. No, but at the same time, he he just blames everyone but himself. He has Mm. these, like, classic sociopathic uh, character traits. Mm. Like, everything is everybody else's fault and Mm. nothing is his fault. And it's because of this class system and Mm. it's because of uh, women that are just angry because they don't have a penis. And, like, it's... Yeah. It's all this sort of uh, ridiculous notions he has in his head. And some of it is, of course, true. Like there is a class system and poor people mm. do have it worse and have a more difficult mm. time of it. Um, so it's this sort of mix of stuff you have sympathy mm. for him with and stuff that he just sort of really shows his true colors mm. as a hateful and, and misanthropic jerk. Yeah. He also went to jail before the film starts uh, for attacking someone he thought had had sex with his daughter. Yeah, I've seen that's part of the previous movie. Mm. But it seems to me like that's sort of more of a possessive thing than mm. a sort of uh, loving thing. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Because to me, and it's clear throughout this movie that he views his daughter as an extension of himself mm. and his property in a very sociopathic way. And so even though he sort of lacks the ability to feel empathy or sympathy for another human being, he's still able to retaliate on behalf of her because he views her as his property. Mm. Yeah, apparently these monologues were written after the production was done. And uh, just to get close to the mindset of the character, Gaspar Noah got himself drunk and just started writing these angry rants and kind of based on his own frustration of having been poor. And um... There's some of the best things about this movie. Mm. Some of the rants are just so wonderfully quotable. Mm. There's a lot of nicely put things, even though he's saying terrible and horrible shit. Mm. It's, really, it's well formulated. <laughs> it's well formulated and sometimes kind of funny. He also uses this uh, kind of like a, a gimmick. It's it's quite fun, actually. 
Towards the end of the movie, when you're getting into the really nasty stuff, there's a um, title screen that comes up and it says you have so, so many seconds to leave. It's a <laughs> countdown before the bad shit comes and y- you can make a choice. And, yeah, first um, there's a countdown, then there's like a giant letter saying yeah. danger. Yeah, yeah danger. <laughs> Apparently this is um, inspired by a movie called Homicide by this filmmaker called William Castle from 1961. Yeah. And uh, he was a, he's, a, he's a bit of an interesting filmmaker. He wasn't a, a great filmmaker, but he was quite clever when it came to marketing because he always had a gimmick. And the gimmick for marketing was that it had this countdown called a fright break that allowed patrons to get a refund if uh, it was too horrible for them. And, uh, you know, he wanted to avoid this from happening. So he made kind of like a, a coward's corner in the cinema. So that if you <laughs> wanted that break, you have to go to the coward's corner. So kind of incentivizing <laughs> not doing that. That's, that's incredible. Yeah. And he also had another film called Macabre. And he had this crazy uh, gimmick for that one where he offered the audience $1,000 life insurance policy if they were to suffer death by fright during the film. Because <laughs> uh, nobody would do that. But he just had the, all these gimmicks. Obviously. And his uh, films, you know... They were financially successful, not so much critical. But no. I think as some of his films, I think Homicide is more kindly regarded today than it was back then. Well, I think every good movie should have a gimmick like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a sales gimmick. Yeah, just some crazy shit you have to do in the, the theater. We didn't quite finish discussing the yeah. actual opening scene because it's, yeah. this, it's this bar patron with a gun and he's talking about sort of morals and this is his morals Mm. like he's showing off his gun that's his justice and later in the movie you have the butcher the nameless butcher and he's talking about every man has his morals every man has his justice and this is while he's thinking about revenge on the people who's wronged him and stuff Uh so i I think that's a really like a clear motif throughout this movie the themes of morals and justice but how that's sort of personal Mm. to each and every man certainly not woman in the context of this movie because it's such a misogynistic point of view um but his sort of innate sense of getting justice Mm. getting justice for himself and of course it sort of it leads up to like after the countdown and the danger sequence, that's when you sort of get the scenes with his daughter. Yeah, because he picks her up from the institution and he says he wants to show her the Eiffel Tower, but he takes her to the hotel room where she was conceived originally. Yeah, and to sort of bring things to a close. Yeah, and uh, the scene that follows is quite a, like a, a brutal scene where in some ways, I guess he, he wants to save her from life the way he did his son earlier. And he, he shoots her first in the neck. She's bleeding to death. And he's having these rampant monologues that kind of yeah, increasing. Yeah, it's the stream of consciousness thing yeah. that's just going in 200 miles per hour. It's yeah. just incredibly intense. It's going faster and faster. Yeah. And overlaid on the sound design, there's this humming. Mm. And eventually there's moaning. It's yeah. really well done and creates this incredibly intense atmosphere. Yeah. And he shoots her again in the head and kills her. Yeah. And then he's getting ready to shoot himself. Everything increases into this really intense this madness. And, uh, until he shoots himself. And then you have the scene afterwards, it turns out he was just fantasizing about that. Yeah. And then there's this incestuous scene. Yeah. Which it, is sort of ends with... But I, I find yeah. it interesting that, uh, that you, uh, when you talked about um, him shooting his daughter mm. as sort of a 
similar way to uh, like as he talked about with his son. But to me, it's more like again he views his daughter as an extension of himself, mm. and so he's tired of this uh, world and he wants to save himself from the pain mm. of this world. And she's sort of an extension of him, so it's natural to him to sort of bring his property back to where he made this property and sort of end the entire thing. I don't think it's really about, it's not much about sympathy or... No, in some ways she represents the only thing that's good in a way for him. Yeah. One of the strongest moments in this film for me is in the, the second ending. Before they get to that incestuous stuff, they sit down on the bed and he embraces her. Yeah. And at this point, he kind of uh, opens up emotionally and talks about his uh, loneliness. And he's really sort of desperate and um, vulnerable. It's the first time he's really vulnerable to another person. Yeah, it's sort of the first time you see him lowering his defenses. Mm. He's really uptight yeah. throughout the entire movie up until this yeah. point. Uh, and he's really clasping, like his hands going all over like her back. And uh, Yeah, he seems like a drowning man. Yeah. He's, uh, sad and the scene is really long too this embrace it's kind of awkward and gets more uncomfortable as it goes along there's something kind of nice about it i mean there's something a bit touching almost about uh yeah that situation there is and then it's sort of soured with this incestuous thing capping it yeah which makes you feel incredibly ambivalent Mm. at the end there because Mm. on the one hand he didn't kill his daughter and himself and (laughs) it sort of uh, goes away from that edge and he's sort of also talking about well, I didn't care. Well, I can, maybe I'll go to jail for being yeah. uh, for having sex with my daughter, or maybe not, and maybe it's not so bad. And if it's bad, I can hang myself in jail or whatever. So he's... It ends on a more positive note, in a way. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's sort of seeing different futures mm. ahead of him. Mm. But at the same time, he's sort of this nasty mm. old dude who fucks his daughter. Mm. And she's clearly like, she has some problems. She, she doesn't say a word. She's, yeah, well, she's mute. Uh, she's very vulnerable. Um, it's not stated specifically whether or not she has any kind of physiological... Uh, uh, she lives in an institution normally, so she's not completely independent as a person. No, but as the movie seems to sort of take its cues from this butcher, it's not really important to him, and by extension not important to us as a mm. viewer, whether or not she's actually like developmentally challenged mm. physically or like psychologically challenged, or, or whether she's just uh, experienced a lot of suffering and trauma. Mm. It's not really salient to the theme of the movie. It would work either way, right? But the movie, like the ending of the movie is so ambivalent weird. Mm. One way of looking at it is that it's uh, it's eased up and he's kind of more positive and it has this beautiful crane shot of the camera leaving the terrace and just yeah. going onto the street and it's it's lighter, it's more open. At the same time, he's just had incestuous sex with a yeah. really vulnerable daughter and... So it has this mode of a sort of a light, mm. happy ending, mm. but the, the core of it mm. is sort of really rotten and bad, so... Yeah. But at the same time, lighter than what it would have been. Yeah. So. That's really interesting, I think, as a directorial choice to put this extreme nasty ending before the one that comes afterwards, which is also really bad. If it had just ended with that, then it would felt really bad, but it wouldn't have been quite as ambivalent because now you've seen... It would have been more obvious. I think it would have been a less interesting mm. movie if they went with that. Though it would have been an understandable directorial mm. choice. I don't know. What, what do you sort of think the moral of the story is because I think it does have a lot to do with morals. Uh, yeah. It doesn't necessarily specifically choose uh, interpretation for you. No, no, no. But what it does is it examines the kind of isolated, lonely, aggressive person who has no way forward. 
in a way. And, you know, he's experienced a lot of horrible things and he's done a lot of horrible things. And he's kind of like, it's just this catalyst. I mean, something has to explode one way or another. Right. And the idea of, you know, a sense of justice or having a place in the world that has any sort of meaning, because he doesn't, you know, the one thing that he he's kind of wants to do is to be a butcher and he's a, he's a horse butcher, but that trade's kind of going down and there's not much work and... You know, he doesn't have a function. He doesn't have a, a usefulness to anyone. No one has any interest in him. And uh, he just feels so dejected. Yeah, I don't know if he if that's even like some positive wish for him to be a butcher. For one point, it's like, it's the only really want he does have. is like, somebody please give me a job so I can have a steak. Other than that, leave me alone. Yeah. Or have steak. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, just fulfill my basic needs and leave me alone. You know, if, if internet had existed at this point, you know, as it does today, then he would have been one of those horrible internet trolls who were just writing these nasty rants to people. And I was about to say, he's, he's, he's like perfect incel material. <laughs> yeah. Incredibly misogynistic, hates everyone, really thinks badly of everyone and mm. projects onto everyone the same nasty thoughts he has himself mm. and uh, blames everyone else yeah. than himself. Yeah. Um, you can really draw that parallel to these, this sort of modern mm. misanthrope. Mm. Yeah, in some ways, it almost feels more relevant today. It Not does. that it wasn't then, but today, this kind of toxic, wounded masculinity that doesn't know where to place itself, yeah. it's so relevant. It's really about masculinity is really central to the story. Mm. And this sort of what you get out of this movie is, is sort of a look at this wounded and trampled masculinity mm. he's emasculated so many times throughout mm. the movie like his girlfriend calls him gay mm. he doesn't get jobs he, mm. he like his old friends turn him down he, he has no respect left mm. from his time as a butcher like at every turn he's emasculated he doesn't have enough money to buy red wine mm. like we talked about you get a sort of sympathy for him even though he's this horrible person and at the same time, like you, you can have sympathy for these sort of incel, these these lonely internet trolls who mm. just sit and hate. Like there have been like many moments in their lives that have led to this, mm. and I don't think all of them are their fault. Like this butcher, not everything is his fault. Mm. You could ostensibly imagine that if he got a job, for instance, mm. when he went to Paris, mm. it wouldn't be this terrible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he might have been that racist asshole who has a butcher shop, but he wouldn't right. start killing or having sex with his daughter. Right, he would be an unpleasant person instead of this incredibly terroristic, horrible, murderous, mm. well, nearly murderous person. Mm. We don't know, though. Maybe he does open a butcher yeah. shop and become this racist butcher. It's quite an open ending. He also feels like there's such a pressure of aggression inside him. The way he, like, in the opening monologue, as I said, he just so dispassionately describes the bad things that he's experienced. He describes them the same way. I mean, his parents leaving him and being sexually abused, going to school and being imprisoned for attacking his daughter's friend. Yeah. Everything is described in the same kind of monotone. They're very but, disinterested almost. Because there's a lot of emotion there really, but yeah. he just can't relate to it. There's a lot of trauma and a lot mm. of, like he doesn't have his father. He, mm. he talks about his father more and more throughout mm. the movie and especially towards the end, his father was a communist uh, mm. killed by the Nazis. Yeah. It's interesting how he, he hates Nazis too. Yeah. <laughs> Even though yeah. he's a racist misogynist <laughs> that sort of wants to kill uh, all foreigners in France. He still hates Nazis. Like he hates everyone. Mm. Gaspineau, he's uh, half Argentinian and half French. And when he first came to France from Argentina, his father told them that they eat horse meat, which they certainly don't do. A lot of countries don't. And uh, he was kind of shocked by this and it kind of sparked his imagination to creating a character, the butcher, who is a, a horse butcher. And there's a lot of talk about 
horses and eating horses. And yeah, stuff. butchery meat, horse meat, mm. all those kinds of things. Um, his father was a, is quite a famous uh, artist from Argentina. And he's also dealt with a lot of themes of like violence and oppression. And um, they escaped from Argentina mm. in a time of real, a political turmoil and stuff. So it seems like Gaspar Noé has understanding of a lot of uh, traumatic like historical events and, mm. and, uh, and societal oppression and uh, negativity. Mm. Uh, of course, that's me just interpreting that. I'm not saying it's the major influence on his art. Obviously, he has a lot of different influences, especially mm. from different directors and movies and stuff. Mm. But it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. It's a fascinating movie, and it's fascinating the way it deals with the sort of loner, the sort of hateful loner that it's such a mainstay in modern society. But previously, it was a much more rare occurrence. It seems because, I don't know, we've become so compartmentalized in this time we're living in that it seems more prevalent. Mm. It's like a major theme of our contemporary time, this wounded masculinity that's kind of bursting with aggression in all directions. Yeah, and also like combined with societal depression mm. or poverty, like you see it in uh, terrorist attacks, both mm. from the religious extremism, mm. far-right extremism, like all over you see these sort of disenfranchised or disconnected people that feel they've, they've had their sort of integrity trampled upon. Mm. And they feel totally disconnected from society. Yeah. And this movie really does delve into that, does grapple with those themes and ideas. It doesn't really, like I, I said, it's it's a lot about morals and justice. But to me, mm. like the ending sort of hammers home the idea that his ideas of justice and morals are sort of in large part crafted by the way his society has been around him. And he feels very powerless in his own life. So he uses the lack of power and the way he feels trampled on as a way to excuse heinous actions that in his mind are seen as moralistically right and and as a justice mm, that's true and i think that resonates with the way we see people commit atrocities these days yeah. and it's a really good movie really striking and well made and has these quite precise territorial choices that kind of makes it a bit singular yeah, it's singular, but at the same time, it sort of resonates with a lot of other stuff. Like I talked about Guy Ritchie, mm. but it, it also is sort of reminiscent of uh, Nikolai Winding Reft. Winding, Winding Reft, and his sort of uh, sort of intense, especially early work with his Butcher trilogy. And uh, and honestly, the Nameless Butcher sort of reminds me of um, of Kim Bodnia a bit. Mm. The sort of wounded masculine yeah. sort of. You meant the Pusher trilogy. Yeah, yeah, the Pusher trilogy. Mm. And it, it does have this mm, sort of, yeah. even though it's quite different, yeah. it does have this sort of sense of urgency and intensity and sharp yeah. cuts and very well edited and it never feels boring. And yeah. it's just sort of a, like a roller coaster. Yeah, I agree. Actually, it does remind me a bit of Kimbodna in, in that type of role. Uh, there's something a bit wounded yeah. uh, and... Uh, sort of outdated almost. Like that sort of guy would feel more at home in the 50s. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I don't know. It's... Um, but it's it's a fun movie, even though it's so horrible. It's sort of delightfully atrocious. Yeah. The way it is offensive towards you as a cinema goer is not exactly amusing, but it's kind of delightful in a way. Yeah, it is. He is <laughs> delightfully misanthropic. Yeah, it kind of winks at you a little bit, like with this countdown that you can have to leave the cinema and yeah and when he like recounts mm. like people mistreating him there's this close-up of their mouths saying yeah. the bad thing to yeah, him. yeah yeah 
it's uh yeah it's humorous for what it is mm. which is a, a really horrible intense <laughs> uh, unpleasant movie mm. yeah it's it's great stuff great stuff So, Thomas, do you have any recommendation? I do. And it's kind of like a spoken word experimental song. It's called I Have a Special Plan for This World by a band called Current 93. It's kind of like an experimental band. There's like this one figurehead and it's it's kind of shifting the musicians back and forward. And the lyrics are taken from a poem by the same name of the author Thomas Ligotti. Um, Ligotti. And it's spoken by David Tibbet, this current 93 guy. It's got this droning uh, soundtrack that's kind of uneasy and escalatingly nasty. And this dispassionate voice talking about his special plan for this world. It's kind of uh, unpleasantly chilling as he's talking about this deterministic point of view. Kind of similar to The Butcher from I Stand Alone. It has this, yeah, almost this post-industrial drone. and Quite un- unconventional, actually, with synths and found sounds and um, using some minimal, like, piano and guitars and stuff. And the theme's really nihilistic. It's really dry and angsty and uncomfortable. I think the voice is like from a, a tape recorder or something. You can like hear him clicking it on and off yeah. uh, in the background. And he's just talking about like, I have a special plan for this world. This world is a horrible place and everything's and it's kind of slowly escalating. And it's, it's kind of a, a longer piece, uh, like a quarter of an hour or something. Um, yeah. It's almost like a performance piece. It's really strong and interesting. Uh, I really love that, actually. It's great. It's really well written. Yeah. That's good, if it's long. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. It doesn't sound like something you'd put on on a date well, as background music. It have to be a very special date. <laughs> a very special date, yeah. yeah. With it, a very it, special person. And, you know, because it, it, it ends with a repeat of one of the earliest lines. It, it just loops over and over the, when everybody you love is finally gone. And he just says that over and over again. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's great. And what about you? Do you have uh, a lovely bit of recommendation for us? I do have a recommendation. I don't quite recall if I've talked about this movie before, but I was reminded of it uh, watching Uncut Gems uh, Mm. a little while ago, which is, of course, super, super intense and unpleasant. And it has this real, like, nerve to it. Mm. I really loved Uncut Gems, and it reminded me of a 2008 movie called Caliber, directed by Matt Palmer. It was released on Netflix, I believe. And it's sort of, I haven't heard a lot of discussions about this movie, but it was probably one of my favorites that year. Mm. And it's an incredibly tense movie. It's a sort of a thriller. Mm. It has a reminiscent feeling to Uncut Gems, where you're like constantly nervous mm. about what's going to happen. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> but it's also quite different from Uncut Gems because it takes place in the Scottish countryside. And it's about a man who's getting married and he takes an old friend uh, and they sort of go on this, uh, call it not a stag party, but a sort of a, a last hurrah b- before he gets married. Mm. And they go hunting in the Scottish countryside. And I can't really say much more about this movie without spoiling it. Yeah, it's a bit twisty, is it? Well, yeah, there's a twist. And, <laughs> uh, and after that twist, it becomes this fucking nightmare okay, just okay. so incredibly uncomfortable oh. and tense and it's it's 
beautiful. I love this movie. So but does it go into like horror territory? Or? No, no, no. It's definitely a thriller. Mm. And veers off into this really like yeah. A good comparison would be Uncut Gems. Mm. Like that's nice. Yeah. It's there's no supernatural stuff, but it it's way scarier than a lot of horror movies. It's really super uncomfortable. Mm. That's my recommendation. Caliber from 2018. Who was the director? It's directed by Matt Palmer. Well, thanks for that. Now we have two unpleasant recommendations. Yes. If you want to get in touch with us, you can send us an email at unpleasantmovies at protonmail.com. The music for this episode was from the band Umulium. That's uh, Jules Skarning and Sverre Ogor. And uh, if you want to check out our list of unpleasant movies, you can see it over at Mubi. Just look at unpleasant movies at Mubi. Yeah, and that's about it for today. And uh, what are we discussing next? Yeah, next is Irreversible, Gaspar Noe's follow-up to this. Yes. Which has direct narrative tissue, but it's about something completely different. Yeah, but it shares some of the same flesh with, <laughs> yeah. with the, the movie we just discussed. So. And it's uh, widely considered one of the most intense films, you know, unpleasant films ever. So <laughs> It will be delightful. Well, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.